when I was growing up, my dad, um, well, he still is, he was a carpenter, but in those days he worked with this group of brothers, um, and they were the ones who employed him. But the brothers, sometimes their older dad would work with them too, and his name was Ralph. And my dad informed me about something called the Ralph Zone, which was a, the zone he preferred to work in because it was above his waist. So imagine this is the wall I'm working on. It was above his waist and below his head. So he doesn't have to reach up, doesn't have to bend down. You can nail things without stretching or you know, stressing yourself at all. And my dad referred to that as the Ralph Zone because that was where he wanted to work. There's no strain, no stretching, and it was comfortable. And we all have a Ralph Zone in our lives as well. We usually call it our comfort zone. Um, and it's a zone in our lives where we're like, hey, I'm not being stretched here. I'm not being strained here. I'm not being stressed here. I like it here. It's comfortable. And then there's those things that are outside of our comfort zone where it's like, okay, we're feeling like oh, I have to bend over. I have to reach up for this. It's, things are out of my reach, and this makes me uncomfortable and strained and stretched. But I, what I want to explore together for a little bit is what makes our comfort zone comfortable? What makes it a zone um, where we aren't being strained or stressed? And actually, you know, it can, it's like, well, why is it a comfort zone? Well, because it's comfortable. Well, okay. But let's think about what's the opposite of that. Um, what are the kind of activities that are out of our comfort zone? What makes those situations or activities uncomfortable to us? And so let's brainstorm those on the board. What are the kind of things that are out of our comfort zone? What's true about those situations or activities? Things that we're not skilled in. So things we're not skilled in, out of our comfort zone. High stakes. High stakes. You might be like, wow, if I mess this up, uh, bad things could happen to people. Where we don't know the outcome. Don't know the outcome. There's urgency. Urgency, meaning like? Like it's time sensitive. Time sensitive, okay. I'm having a hard time writing on that, okay. Urgency. Time sensitive. Things that we do in front of peers. Ooh, so like other people watching, or like, I guess some people would feel more comfortable in front of people they know, but some people would be less comfortable. It sort of depends. Like, you maybe you're comfortable being in front of strangers, or maybe you're comfortable being in front of people you know, or maybe it's the opposite. So, and typically um, it's like people the same age as you, right? Like, teachers okay. aren't necessarily scared. So, okay. talk in front of Afraid of being judged, right? Yeah. What's the question? What are, um, what are the kinds of situations that are out of our comfort zone? Like, what's true of those when it's like, oh, this is out of my comfort zone. What sort of situation? So we said something we're not skilled at doing. When there's high stakes, we don't know the outcome. There's urgency or doing so something in front dangerous. of peers. <coughs> dangerous, you said? Yeah, I think dangerous. Dangerous, you may be like, I feel uncomfortable and nervous here. Newly met people. Hmm. Oh, like you just met these people. Yeah. Want to make a good impression. Yeah. When school so, starts. When school, yeah, when school starts, feels uncomfortable. Submitting to liars. So liars. So you might be like, this is people this who lie. People who lie about a person. Yeah, yeah. We still have to submit to them because they're. Okay. So, um, following somebody or submitting to somebody when, um, when we know they're maybe not the best person to follow or well, submit. They're being to dishonest, somebody. but because they're in power, we have to submit. Okay. So you're all. I'll just put what you said, submitting to liars can feel uncomfortable. Okay. Anything else that an activity or situation that is out of your comfort zone? 
a good list. Well, I'm thinking it comes in there as sort of doing something, like sub do, submitting the liars is like doing something that you don't believe is right, but you have to. Okay. Like you feel kind of maybe pressure or something. It's either, or like, yeah, you're pressured to do something. Okay. Um, following so, when, here I'll complete this sentence, follow when you know it's not right. Now we don't, now this isn't left off by himself. Feeling pre or maybe so it's somebody pressuring you to do something. Yeah, you necessarily don't believe in or... I'll just put someone pressuring yeah. us. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so we got a good list. I'm sure we could come up with a lot more. And as we're continuing this series called Beginning the Journey Home in the book of Genesis. Um, we're focused on the grandson of Abraham, the first main character we met in chapter 12. And this grandson is named Jacob. And we saw last week how Jacob schemed his way into getting God's blessing, um, inheriting the blessing of God from his father Isaac. And God, if you remember, God chose Abraham and his family, chose to bless them so they would be a blessing to the world. And then um, God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael to bless Isaac to be a blessing to the world. And then now he's chosen Jacob instead of Esau uh, to be a blessing to the world. But as we saw, Jacob is this deceptive trickster. Is this really God's draft pick for his team? Jacob, this is the guy that's going to do this? God's choice to bless Jacob and use him, as we said last week, only shows us God's amazing grace. And this week we get more insight. We, you know, we talked a lot about God's blessing, God's blessing, the blessing of God. And God keeps saying, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the world. And he needs to find that in some ways. Uh, but this week we get more insight into that. And the big question this passage answers is, how does heaven come to earth? How does heaven come to earth? That's the question we're going to be answering. How does heaven come to earth? And so um, we read a little bit of an overlap of what we covered last week um, this evening so we can get the story. And if you remember... What happened last week, or if you've read that story before, Jacob, he takes advantage of his brother Esau's, actually this happened several weeks ago, but he takes advantage of his brother Esau's hunger by getting him to sell his birthright. And then last week we saw Jacob takes advantage of his father's blindness um, to get Esau's blessing. He tricks him um, and lies to him, pretends he's Esau, and steals it from him. And then his father Isaac, when he realizes that he's shocked, and then Esau just weeps in tears, and now Esau... Um, understandably hates his brother and wants to kill him, uh, but he's waiting till his father dies. He's like, when my dad dies, I'm going to kill off my brother. And Jacob's mom, Rebecca, helped arrange this whole stealing of the blessing um, in secret, uh, and she's now estranged from Esau. You know, go figure. Um, she <laughs> helped Jacob steal her other son's blessing from their father, and now they're estranged. And, so not, and then she hears, well, Esau's plotting to kill Jacob. And because Jacob is her favorite, she's like, okay, i got to keep him safe. I'm going to send him to my brother Laban so that he'll be safe there. But she knows Isaac isn't going to go for that. So she says, well, she makes it about him marrying somebody from their own people. And so are you sensing a messed up family situation yet? <laughs> this is like something you'd see on like daytime soap operas. There's lying and deception and people playing favorites and there's plots to murder people after dad dies and it's like this really messed up family situation but Isaac agrees to send Jacob to Haran where Rebecca's brother lives so he can find a wife there and before he goes Isaac again pronounces the blessing of God over Jacob's life and so let's talk about Jacob's comfort zone we learn Jacob is the son who likes hanging out in the tents with mom He's not the hunter like Esau who likes to be out in the field, hunting game, knows the wilderness, how to survive in it. But now, 
you know, the Jacob the tent dweller has to make this 550 mile journey to Haran, would have taken a couple days, or would have taken over a month, and he's gotten what he wanted from Esau, he's got the blessing of the firstborn, he's got the blessing um, from God, but at what cost? How blessed is his life feeling at this point? What kind of mental and emotional state is he in? He's in danger. He's distressed. He's vulnerable. He's leaving everything he knows to go to a land he doesn't know and to part of his family that he doesn't know. And he's just totally unknown. And we could, we said this, when we don't know the outcome or you know, when we feel out of our comfort zone, it's when things are unknown to us. And so would you say that Jacob is feeling a bit out of his comfort zone right now, feeling some of these things? I'm going, you know, things are dangerous. He's going to be in front of new people and he doesn't know yet that Laban is kind of a trickster liar. He's going to be submitting to Laban as his boss. Um, and he's just go- not skilled at surviving in the wilderness. So he's totally out of his comfort zone. But it's in this moment of vulnerability, out of his comfort zone, that God begins to work. And if you think about your own life, isn't it true that you feel God working or experience his presence um, or his power when you've come to the end of yourself, when you finally get out of the things that you feel comfortable doing and you're out of your comfort zone and it's in those moments um, when we start calling on God because it's when things are running smoothly it's easy to rarely think about God because I'm in my comfort zone I've got everything under <coughs> control everything is going as I planned it but when we get the call that the lump is cancer or that we're being laid off or being fired or that mom is fading fast with days to live or that we've failed geometry, or we've got an F on our paper. And that's when we feel the ground crumbling beneath our feet. It's, it's when we're faced with situations that require more than our resources to get through, that now we start looking to God, and now we start looking for his presence and looking for his help and depending on him. And Jacob needs a wake-up call, and a lot of times we do too, because when we're in our comfort zone, we're like, I've got this. And Jacob needs a wake-up call, and God gets him out of his comfort zone, so he starts listening. This, removing him from his comfort zone, unplugs his ears so he can hear God. So we already brainstormed what sorts of situations um, feel out of our comfort zone. And and I want to use the four G's to define what our comfort zone is. And so we've done these four G's, been talking about them. Hopefully, I don't know how I can hold them so everyone can see. Here, look, a prime. Vanna. uh, Really? You look nice. Uh, anyway. Okay, our comfort zone. We'll use the last part of these four Gs. So these are just four attributes of God that we can use um, to encourage us, to comfort us, to, to look to God in our moments of need. But when we're in our comfort zone, there's four statements that are true. So the one is, uh, I am in control. Don't you feel comfortable when you're in control? When you feel like everything's going as you want it to, when you do something, it works out. When you tell somebody else to do something, they do it. So we're in control when we're in our comfort zone. Secondly, we're not afraid. And when you're, com- when you're comfortable, uh, you're not afraid. So this is true when we're in our comfort zone. Thirdly, we're, we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction, meaning our needs are met. I'm in need. I, I'm, not, I'm not in need. Like I have everything uh, that I need. I'm not lacking a skill. I'm not lacking a resource. And then fourthly, um, I've proven myself. You know, in front of new people or peers or doing something um, that's uncomfortable. It's like, man, I haven't proven myself in this, so I'm wor- worried of how it's going to go. Uh, I have uh, proved myself. 
All right, thanks, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Comfort zone, there it is. There it is, the zone of comfort. So back at home in his tent, Jacob felt in control. He had already secured Esau's birthright. He would already secured the blessing of God through his own schemes. And his plans, what he's doing is going as he wants it to. And in his tent, he's safe. He's not scared because he's under his mom's love and protection. And his needs are being met by his family. I mean, his family's pretty wealthy because God's been blessing them. And he didn't have to prove himself because he was already his mom's favorite. And how comfortable is he feeling right now? Out of his comfort zone, here's what's true when we're not in our comfort zone. It's the opposite of all these. We're not in control. So out, out here, we're not in control. So Jacob, he planned his way uh, into taking from Esau what he wanted, but now it's spiraled out of his control. Esau wants to kill him, and now his parents had to send him away to his uncle. And so he's totally out of control of the situation. And he's scared. He's not a traveler or a hunter. He likes to hang out in the tents with his mom. But now he's out on the road traveling to an unknown place. And he's in need. So he's scared. He's in need because he, his family was providing for all his needs. Now who's going to provide for his needs out on the road going to his family? And he hasn't proven, him, he hasn't proven himself either. He's going to be staying with his uncle Laban. And he doesn't know this guy. It's, you know, he's a month journey away from him. It's not like they're hanging out every weekend. They're getting together for potlucks after church service on a Sunday. Um, he's going to be a stranger there. He's going to have to establish his position with his uncle. Is this new family, is his uncle, is this family going to accept him? And so it's out here when we're not in control, when we're afraid, when we're in need, when we haven't proven ourselves. It's out here when we're out of our comfort zone and we come to realize our need for something outside of ourselves. It's when we feel our limits, our inadequacies, our, our neediness, and our weaknesses. And we realize that I just won't cut it. In here, look, I. I'm in control. I'm not afraid. I'm not in need. I approve myself. But it's out here that we realize I just isn't going to cut it. And in that place, when Jacob is in that place, that he meets God. God comes and meets him. So let's look at Jacob's encounter with God in verses 10. 17 of chapter 28. We'll just reread the first two verses, 10 and 11. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And I'm just going to pause there. So it's, this is about 60 miles, um, a couple days into his one-month journey of 550 miles. And Jacob's settling in for the night, and then something remarkable happens in verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. And God appears to him in a dream. He sees this ladder, or some translations say a staircase. It's connecting heaven and earth, and the angels are walking up and down it. Some angels are coming back, perhaps to report to God. Others are going out to go into the earth to leave on their assignments from God. And at the top of the staircase, he sees God looking down on him. And God is about to say something, something to him that his father already told him. We read it just a little bit ago before leaving for Haran. Isaac blessed Jacob saying this, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may Take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now hear what God says to him in verse 13. I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land in which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now it's one thing for your dad to tell you what God Almighty is going to do. You know, you can be like, sure, Dad. I know you're really into all this God stuff, uh, but that's not really my thing. And we haven't seen any indication that Jacob is a spiritually minded person at all in the story yet. Uh, but it's another thing for God Almighty himself to tell you what God Almighty is going to do. And God confirms that, yeah, the blessing of Abraham is going to be passed down from Isaac to you, Jacob. You're going to be given all this land. Uh, you're going to be given the land of Canaan. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And that's pretty amazing in light of what Jacob just did to his brother and to his father that we just read about. And we heard Isaac gives the blessing to him, but maybe God's going to revoke it. Maybe Isaac is kind of out of step here, but God confirms it. And in spite of Jacob's horrible sin, God makes these generous promises, which show us again his amazing grace. And, but that's not all. As Jacob is leaving his home and his family, totally out of his comfort zone for a foreign land, God comforts him. It's interesting that Jacob's out here, out of his comfort zone. But what does God want to do? He wants to give him comfort when he's left this area where he feels like he has all the resources. So look at verse 15. Maybe you need to hear these words today. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. I'm with you. I'll keep you. I'll watch over you. I'll bring you back here. You're not leaving to Laban and never returning. I'm going to bring you back here, and I will not leave you until I've done all that I've promised you. This is what God tells him you know, in a specific way. It's like, okay, here's the promise I've been saying to everybody uh, in your family, or at least Abraham and Isaac, and now you. And then here's a specific one just for you for this moment in your life. He's far out of his comfort zone. And so those words sound like good news for Jacob. And maybe you feel way out of your comfort zone. You feel way out of control. You feel afraid. You feel in need. You feel like you haven't proven yourself. And maybe you need to hear those words today. That's when we get outside of our comfort zones that we need the good news about who God is. That's, what, that's when we need the four Gs we've been looking at. That's when we need to know God is great so I don't have to be in control. That's when we need to know God is glorious so I don't have to be afraid. That's when we need to know God is good so I don't need to look for my satisfaction elsewhere. And that's when we need to know God is gracious. So I need to prove myself. When we're in here, we don't need any of those truths. But when we're out here, out of our comfort zone, when we discover I am not enough, um, then we need to believe those truths about God. And as long as we're unwilling to leave our comfort zones, we'll be looking to our own resources. And God called Abraham to leave his comfort zone. And he did. He said, leave your people, um, leave the place that you know. And then J God did it and, and believed him. But here, Jacob um, is unwilling and God forces him out of it. He's like, I need to do something in your life, kid. And so he, actually he's not a kid, he's like 70 years old at this point. But I need, I guess maybe God could say it to anybody. But he's like, I need to do something in this guy's life. And so he kind of boots him out of his comfort zone. And he's like, now I'm going to meet with you. And I'm going to work with you. And now he's got Jacob listening. And so we see Jacob's immediate response to this dream in verses 16 and 17. It says this, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep. And said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In the ancient world, another name for house of God is a temple. And a temple was a place uh, 
that where heaven and earth met. It was like this gateway um, between the two. Heaven is like the place, um, the spiritual place where like the gods, we believe in one God, but in that day there's many who believed in multiple gods. That's the place where the gods are. And then we have earth, that's the place where we are. And a temple was the place where those two met, where they intersected, where you could be in God's presence. And Jacob, he's not in this physical structure. I mean, some translations are saying he has a rock under his head, which kind of gives us an indication of what kind of state is Jacob in in terms of comfort? He's living with a rock under his head. But Jacob, he's not in a physical structure, but seeing the staircase to heaven, his conclusion is, well, this is the house of God. This is a temple, and I didn't even know it. There's a gateway to heaven here, and we'll come back to that idea shortly. And that's Jacob's immediate response, but we get his full response in the morning. Verses 18 through 22 say this. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat, enough clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And so, how does Jacob respond to God? Does Jacob respond in faith? Kind of. Does he respond with worship? Kind of. It's kind, there's like a hint of it there. There's a big dose of Jacob's usual, I'm going to make a deal with you tendencies. And there's a little hint of faith. Because starting back in Genesis 4, the usual way of responding to God in true worship was you build an altar and you call on the name of the Lord. You're calling him for help, recognizing your need for him. You're saying, I'm inviting you into my life. Noah does it. Abraham does it. Isaac does it. But Jacob responds differently. He sets up, a pag- he does a pagan ritual, setting up a pillar and pouring oil on it. This is what other people worshiping other gods at that time would do. And he also doesn't respond with this wholehearted devotion to God. Like, yes, I will do whatever I want. You know, he has to say like, uh, just do what you want with my life. I'm in full surrender. And he doesn't, seem to even fully trust God will do what he says. Instead, he makes this vow, which basically says, if you get me out of this mess, you'll be my God. If you keep your promise, then I will worship you. And Jacob, he's setting the terms for his relationship with God. If you do this, then I'll devote myself to you. He's like making this deal uh, with God. And we can easily relate to Jacob, uh, to God in the same way that Jacob does. He's, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything for you. Have you ever been situation where you said that you're so desperate you know i remember time when i was out of my comfort zone it was doing uh it might be surprising or maybe it won't be um what was it called it was uh it was public speaking 101 in, in college and i remember just every time i was so nervous for every speech i'm like god please take away my nerves please take you know and it's just like pleading with them in those moments where we're out of our comfort zone we just like plead for god um, to do something for us or we can let our level of devotion for him go up and down um, based on whether we see him doing for us what we want him to do for us. You know, someone is there, maybe you're in a tough spot and someone suggested to you like, hey, you need to, you need to go to God with this. You've been talking to him and you say, well, God, what has he ever done for me? I've been praying and he's done nothing. I've thought that and I've said that and maybe you've done that too. And the amazing truth is that God in his grace doesn't say to Jacob after this response, well, all right, I take it back. Until you respond with perfect faith, perfect worship, we're done. So give me a call when you can do that. He doesn't say that to him. Um, instead, he said he already said, I'm going to not leave you until I've done what I promised you. I gave you this promise. I'm not going to leave you until I do it. It doesn't matter how you respond to me. And that should encourage us because 
God keeps his promise despite the weakness of Jacob's faith and devotion to God. When your devotion to God fluctuates, his devotion to you never does. And salvation is never based on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of our Savior. It's based on the one in whom we put our faith, in his strength. And God meets Jacob when he's at, where he is at, and he does the same for each of us. He doesn't say, like, I'm just going to wait till you get strong enough. No, it's all about resting on God's strength and his devotion to us. So the big question this passage answers is, how does heaven come to earth? And the answer is, God moves into the lives of selfish people. How does heaven come to earth? And the answer is, God moves into the lives of selfish people. Heaven comes to earth when God moves into the lives of selfish people. And Jacob is selfish. He's concerned with what he wants, and he's willing to make poor deals with his dad, he's made, or with his brother, he's made, willing to make deals with God. He's willing to hurt people in the process of getting what he what he wants out of life. It doesn't matter who gets in the way. And yet God has moved into his life. God says, I will be with you. God has moved in. In this moment with Jacob, God connects the blessing that Jacob's family will give to the world um, with his presence. And that's where we get this insight into what is God intending to do through this family? What's the blessing he wants to give to everyone through Abraham and his family? And it's his presence. And in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world to be a place where he would live with humanity. And that's why we put these decorations up um, as reminders of where is home for us? Home is the Garden of Eden that God first created. That's what, this was this temple, this house that he created to live with Adam and Eve. And this was a place to be with him in his presence. That's why we tried to make this feel like a home and decorate with the, the, the leaves and stuff. And our home is supposed to be with God. But Adam and Eve rejected God as their king. And so God had to send them out of that home. They had to leave his presence. And then Genesis 11 the builders of the Tower of Babel, remember what they're trying to do? They're trying to build a tower to heaven. They're trying to build a staircase to heaven. But then God, he takes that down because nobody can build their way. Nobody can scheme their way like Jacob or like the Tower of Babel builders. No one can work their way back into God's presence. It's only by his invitation, by him making a way. And so God tells Abraham, I'm going to be with you. And he says, I want to use you to bring the world back home to me, back home to my presence. And God was with Isaac. And God is now going to be with Jacob. And later in this family history, the people, Abraham's family becomes the people of Israel. When they're in Egypt, enslaved, God says, I want you to come out and worship me. And then he dwells with them in this tent, another word for his tabernacle. Um, and he, so he wants to dwell among them. And he makes a way to cover their sin, to pay for their sin so he can dwell among them. And then later, King Solomon, one of their kings, builds a temple for God to dwell in there. So his goal was always, I want to be with this family, even when they're you know, one person or two people or when they become a whole nation, I'm going to dwell among them. But the problem was that, like Adam and Eve, they rejected God as their king over and over again. And even though he had years and years and decades of patience, eventually he said, you, you can't be in my presence anymore, and so I'm taking it away. But Israel's prophets looked forward to a day when God's presence would return, and that day came when Jesus came to earth. And he, Jesus actually said in John 1, um, he basically said in not so many words, I'm that staircase to heaven. Um, I'm the way, the gateway by which heaven is going to come to earth. And so if you want to experience God's presence in your life, I'm the way. Remember when 
he said, I'm going to the Father, and you guys are going to come with me. He tells the disciples, and then like, well, how are we going to go? You know, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if we want to get into God's presence, Jesus is the way. He's that staircase um, bringing God's presence to us. And one day, Jesus will return to bring heaven to earth. In a new creation, we'll see God face to face, and then face, face to face, and then we'll be at home with God. So Jesus paid the way for us to be in God's presence. And in between now and then, Jesus actually says, you guys are my temple. You guys are the house of God. He says, everybody who trusts in me, I give them my spirit, and now they become the house of God, the new Bethel. And so when you leave today, remember this truth. Know that God has made you his house. God has made you his house. God has made you his house. And the house of God is not a place. It's a people. You know, this, this place isn't a church. This place isn't the house of God. The New Testament makes very clear the house of God is God's people. And that's the blessing God wants to give the world through Abraham's family, his presence. And so if you've trusted in Jesus, um, you've been given God's presence. You've received the blessing God wanted to give. And without God, we all live for ourselves. That's everyone's condition. We all live for our kingdom of self. This is a kingdom of self. Look at all the eyes. They're right in here. <clears throat> this is the kingdom we live for without God. We're all like Jacob, living for ourselves. But God calls us to live for his kingdom out here. And it's out here where we need to trust him, where we need to believe he's great, where he's good and glorious and gracious. It's up here that we live with him as king of our lives. It's like we need to get out of that kingdom where we're saying, I want to be in control. I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to be in need. I've proven myself. It's when we finally admit, well, I'm not all those things. And we're out here that we start, finally start to trust in God. And when God moves in to our lives, he remodels. And it's not just a paint job. He completely overhauls our lives. And by the end of it, you look like a completely different person. Perhaps you're wondering, well, if God lives in me, if I'm God's house, and he's living in that house, why does it often seem like he's so far? If God's in the house living in me, why do I often feel home alone? Maybe we can make a joke about the movies there, but why do I often so feel home alone? And I've often wondered that myself. And like, well, If God's in me, why does he sometimes seem so far? Why does I sometimes feel like I'm alone um, if God's so close to me? And it was helpful for me to reflect on this this week. Um, and I realized that there's lots of ways that we can be in the same room with somebody and yet not be listening to them or even aware of them. Um, there's lots of ways we can ignore people. There's, it's easy to be physically close to somebody but relationally far. And it's true that God never leaves us or forsakes us. He's physically close. But you can still be relationally far and feel like you're totally unaware of him. We're with somebody, but we can still feel disconnected and distant. And so the question I want to answer is, what makes us feel disconnected and distant from God? And I'll write them up here. Um, four things. They all start with DIS. You, know, you can almost make anything out of a DIS word. So first is distraction. What makes us feel disconnected and distant? Uh, distraction. Distraction makes us feel disconnected from God. If we're not paying attention to Him, we're going to feel we aren't going to feel connected. And even if you're sitting right next to somebody, you can feel distant from them if you're just staring at your 
if that person's just staring at their phone or staring at the TV or something's on their mind, it's like you're right next to them, but you can feel totally distant and disconnected because we're distracted. And that you could be talking all you want to that person, but they may not hear you if they're distracted. And the truth is that we fill our lives with a lot of noise. And we have a device in our pocket. I mean, it's so amazing what these things can do, our phones. It can be in our pocket or in front of us or beside us. At any time, we can watch our favorite TV show, listen to our favorite music, browse the internet. We can watch a sports game. We can text people. We can call people. We can basically do anything with this little thing sitting in our pocket. And so it doesn't matter if you're uh, sitting somewhere bored or sitting in silence or a checkout line or in the waiting room for the doctor's office or, or wherever you are, you can be never bored and never be without noise and entertainment because you have this thing in your pocket. So do the question you can ask yourself, do you ever take time to turn down the volume and everything else in your life so you can hear God? Because we live noisy, distracted lives, and these don't make it any easier. Do you ever take time to turn down the volume and everything else? Do you ever just sit in quietness and listen to the, the thoughts that come out of your own soul? Like some of us avoid um, silence and boredom because we don't like what, what comes up. Maybe there's pain or there's hurts there that you don't want to come up. And so you always make sure something is in front of you. Do you ever turn the radio off or the TV off or put the phone away to be quiet and still? And you know, what if we, it's challenging for me to think about this, what if we turn to God as much as we turn to our phones? And just imagine you just cut your phone time in half or your TV time in half or whatever it is and use that other half to pray or to listen to God instead, or go for a walk, what would that do to your connection with God to get that distraction out? So it's distraction. Second, disinterest. Disinterest. Disinterest makes us feel disconnected from God. And this means we don't care about what's important to them. And I feel connected to people um, and close to them when they take an interest in what's important to me, and then vice versa. I, even, I feel more connected to somebody else when I make what's important to them important to me, and I take an interest in that. Mm-hmm. And two people can live in the same house and be disconnected because they don't care about what's important to the other person. You know, if a husband doesn't care about what's important to his wife, she can tell him as much as she wants that she wants that shelf put up, but if that's not important to him or he doesn't care about it, like there's, he's never going to do it. He's not going to hear it. Or on the other side, you might not be super excited about your spouse's projects at work, how nap times went, but it's an opportunity um, for connection with that other person um, or with your friends or your neighbors or wherever it is. But just thinking, uh, if we're not interested in what's important to another person, we're not going to feel connected to them. And God may feel distant because you aren't interested in what's important to Him. And so do you take time to learn what's important to Him by reading the Bible? And because God, the Bible is God saying like, hey, get to know me. I just revealed myself to you. You know, people have to reveal what's important to them. And so you're taking time to get to know what's important to him. And our problem is we always think we're most important. But third, so distraction, disinterest, disharmony. Disharmony makes us feel disconnected from God. And this means we're not dealing with our sin. And if you never deal with the ways you've hurt another person or the way they've hurt you, it's each one of those is like a brick. All the hurt, all the pain is like a brick going up and creating a wall between you and that other person. 
And if you're letting your sin pile up unconfessed, or you aren't even making even aware of it, or you don't care about it, you're going to feel distant and disconnected from God. And so we need to recognize our sin, and we need to take it to Him um, and receive the forgiveness He has to offer. Lastly, discontent. Discontent can make us feel disconnected from God. And this means we're not thankful for Him. And I doubt that you ever feel connected to somebody that you complain about a lot. And if you don't think someone brings anything good into your life, or you just don't see it, you aren't going to be thankful for them and you won't feel connected. If you only see what someone doesn't do for you, you aren't going to feel connected to them. You're going to feel disconnected and distant from them. In the same way, if we're only making requests to God for Him to fix all the things He hasn't given us yet, and we're never thanking Him for all that He has already given us, um, we're not going to feel connected to Him. We're not going to feel close to Him. And so, these make me think for a moment to yourself, which one of these is the one you need to mo- work on the most? Are you distracted a lot? Are you not really interested in His purposes and what He cares about and what's important to Him? Do you have disharmony with God? Do you feel like there's this wall between you because you have something that you haven't dealt with or you're not frequently admitting, like, yeah, I'm sinful and Jesus paid for that. Um, are you discontent? Are you just kind of bitter towards Him or not? Or maybe you're just, you know, apathetic because you uh, aren't, don't see the things he's brought into your life. Um, and all these are ways that somebody could be sitting right next to you, physically, and yet you could feel far from him, uh, uh, far from that person. And these all apply to our relationship with God, but they also apply to our relationship with others. So if there's a relationship where you feel disconnected and distant, um, one of these um, is probably going on, most likely multiple of them. You know, something, as we close... It's easy to look at um, what's happening in Abraham's life, Isaac's life, and Jacob's life, and be like, man, I wish God would show up for me like that. Um, I wish God would appear to me like that, and I could have these experiences with him. And I think those folks who I trust are in heaven now because of their faith are looking at us and they're being like, are you crazy? God made you into his house. He's with you all the time. You don't need to wait for him to pop up in your life with a dream or a vision. Um, And all their experiences with God were just a signpost pointing us to the final destination when Jesus would come and send his spirit to dwell inside of us all the time. We don't have to wait for God to come by dream or a vision or send an angel or whatever because God is with us all the time. So we don't need to look back at them with envy because I think they'd be looking at us with envy. Well, envy... It's a sin, but you know what I mean. They're looking at us and being, being like, wow, how amazing it is. We have God with you all the time. Um, but the question is, are we taking, are we uh, moving towards him? Are we pursuing him? Um, because it's never a question of whether God has united himself with us, of whether we are God's house. It's just whether we're kind of doing our own thing and not paying any attention to him with us. And the blessing God wants to give to the world is his presence. That presence is in us, and God sends us as his presence into each other's lives and into the lives of other people. And so people in this world, in each other, we can have Jacob moments because God's presence is in each of us. And God sends us out um, to wow people with his presence, and he sends us to each other to encourage and to comfort and to help one another and strengthen each other. Let's pray.
Father, thanks that you make us fit and worthy for your presence, that you clean up all our sins so that we can have you dwell with us um, and be in your presence. And would you help us look forward to that day when Jesus will return and we'll see you face to face and we'll be at home with you dwelling amongst us. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.